The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side for episode 11 of our national conversation about conversations about race, the Black Protests Matter episode. I'm Tanner Colby and joining me here in Panoply's New York studio are my co-discussant Raquel Cepeda. What up, what up? And as you may have heard, our regular third co-discussant, Baratunde Thurston, got some very good news this week. He was named new supervising producer for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, uh, overseeing all new original digital content. So congratulations, Baratunde. And a cooler way of saying that is just content boss. <laughs> content boss. So Baratunde is still with the show, very yeah. much so. But for the next couple of weeks, he's going to be taking some time off to adjust to his new role. So we will have some special guests filling in. And this week, one of those special Durr. guests is New York Times Magazine yes. investigative reporter and award-winning National Association of Black Journalist, Journalist of the Year for 2015, <laughs> Nicole Hannah-Jones. Yay! Thank we you. are so excited. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. And so on our last episode, we covered the Black Lives Matter protests of Bernie Sanders in Seattle, the political and racial maneuvering behind Uber's campaign to expand in New York against Mayor Bill de Blasio. But before we get to that, the other thing we brought up last week was my racial incident from the Time Warner Center. Almost Uh, ignited a race war. (laughs) I almost started a race war in the Time Warner Center, asking the person sitting next to me to please turn off the YouTube video they were playing on their cell phone. It turned out it was a table of black women. Which I did not know, by the way. They were behind me. I turned around to say, can you please not play your video? And it provoked an incident where I was silenced and asked not to stereotype them and shush what they had to say because they were professional black women having a meeting. And so we discussed that last week. And then lo and behold... Damn, I missed a good one. Yeah. You did. Lo and behold, on the Napa wine train, yes. uh, we have uh, a similar incident, a group of black women... I wouldn't women. say it was similar. No, similar, but it was... Uh, we got a lot of comments, let's say, from yeah. our listeners asking us to discuss it because it was in the same zip code as as what happened. These This group of black women who were part of a book club, they were accused of being too loud on the train, and they were escorted off the train by police uh, and kicked off, and this uh, kicked up a furor. Well, you know, black women that exercise or women of color that exercise their right and left side of the brain, that's dangerous. That's mm-hmm. dangerous to, 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 to a lot of people. So I guess that's why they were silenced, because I thought that was some bullshit. Well, first of all, my thought, original thought, is a group of 10 people cannot not be loud. Yeah. You cannot have, you know, people talking to each other. And there's no right laugh. way to celebrate. Is there a right way to have a good time? I mean, you're celebrating literature. Why can't you? I mean, what do you think, Nicole? It's a wine train. Exactly. I actually did not understand what one It's like a booze expects. cruise, right? right? I didn't know there was a such what thing as a wine train. What kind of silence and decorum one expects on a wine train, which was very interesting. But what's also interesting, of course, is the way immediately the story is that they were, like, assaulting people on the train, which then had to, of course, be walked back because it wasn't true. So I think it's, it's always interesting the way the narratives are crafted in a way to support an action that didn't really make sense. But Right. Well, Did you even know that there was such thing as a wine train? I've never heard of a wine train. I did no. not. I haven't spent much time in the Napa Valley, so yeah, you know, I haven't who the either. Hell knows, but you must know no. Tanner. <laughs> I did not know. I I have been to Napa, but I did not know about the wine train. Um, yeah, well, apparently I, they'd also put some Latinos off the train like a couple months before. Well, they went back through what? all of their Yelp comments, and they've they've put together sort of a disparate impact statement of, of, what? of like all the different groups and how they were treated. And there were white groups that were too loud that were put somewhere else. They were sorry, well, you have to move to this different car if you want to be loud, which, which makes sense to me because like, you know, 
if you're booking a restaurant, right, you don't put the bachelorette party next to the elderly couple celebrating their 40th anniversary. You put them in different areas of the restaurant. So if you're booking this wine train, you put your large groups in one area and you put your quiet you know, couples on their honeymoon in a different area. Quiet exactly. car. You have a quiet car. A quiet car, exactly. So, yeah. It works for a seller. Yeah, it works for a seller. So, no, the whole incident was uh, sad and strange. Um, and we'll see what happens. But now they've been offered, like, a free no, they just ride. Well, I wouldn't even take it. Well, Lord because knows. if they did offer a free train ride or some kind of, like, five-star, you know, I'm sorry, apology, they'll, they would milk it. Mm for good press, like you see what we're doing. But, I mean, we have to take a positive takeaway. The fact that Latino women and black American women were thrown off is just another of the many reasons why we should coalesce. We have the same issues. Just another example. There you go. Yes. There you go. All right, so this week we're going to change things around a little bit. We've been reading the listener feedback ourselves, and as part of changing things up, we're going to hand things off to our producer, A.C. Valdez, to play the audio clips read the emails so that we get them cold here in the studio and we can just respond to them and, and have a little more fun. And by the way, even if we don't get to your um, to your responses, we, because they're so well written and people are so invested, we go through everything. We just can't read everything or can't play go. everything. Your voice does matter. It counts. And please send us voice memos because then we can get through more. Yeah. Through more of these. Concise voice memos. Yes, concise ones. Mm. There you go. All right, AC, what do we got? All right, so I'm going to start off with Black Lives Matter. That's going to bridge a little bit into Bernie Sanders, but I'm going to start off with this email we got from Kay. And Kay says, hello, police brutality and abuse of power is a problem. I would even say is a systematic problem. It must be addressed. I work for a large healthcare system in an urban area, and I see victims of crime come through the doors of the emergency department every day. Black men, women, and children injured are ultimately dying from violence. That violence is, 99% of the time, not committed by police or even white people. It is other black people. The movement should look at cleaning up our own backyard. Yes, I agree. Black lives matter. I just think they should matter all of the time, not only when a police officer is involved. How can I tell someone to treat me better than I'm treating myself? Keep up the conversation. K. Police brutality doesn't nullify, one doesn't nullify the other. They should both be addressed. So I, I, really, I really get irritated when I hear that argument of like, well, look at your own backyard. You know, look at what's happening. Look at black-on-black crime or domestic violence or what have you. But that doesn't nullify the fact that we're being killed and brutalized by a community of people that we pay to protect us and serve us. So I don't know. Yeah, I have to say, like, I can't roll my eyes far enough back in my head Try it, when I say. hear those comments. Yes. Because, one, when it comes to race, we suddenly lose our ability to have nuance. Um, no one would say that we should not be particularly upset by what happened in September 11th when we were bombed by terrorists because white people in America also kill white people all the time and, in fact, kill way more than them were killed in September 11th. We would never say that because it doesn't make sense. Like there are differing degrees and being killed by the state is very different than a criminal. One does not expect the police to treat the people the same as one expects a criminal. But also it's just insulting that somehow black folks are not mourning the deaths of their loved ones who are being killed daily in these communities, that black folks are not fighting in these communities daily against that violence as well. I just I, I don't understand why suddenly we, we lose the ability to have nuance and you only lose that ability if you're seeing 
black folks as some amorphous being who don't really care if their kids are being killed or their loved ones are being killed. They only care if they're being killed by white cops. That's absurd. Right. Right. I actually just finished reading the book that nails this issue to the wall. And I can't believe it hasn't been as discussed as much as, say, Don Ossie Coates' book from the past year. It's called Ghettoside by Jill Leovi, uh, who's an L.A. Times reporter. And what she points out is that both the killing of young black men by police and the killing of young black men by each other are both issues of policing. And that so many young black people and people of color are being you know, shot and injured and through these, this over-policing of stopping everyone for minor infractions, tensions flare up, and you have these shootings. But there is also a, and it sounds perverse to say it, a chronic problem of under-policing in black communities and that nobody cares if black people kill each other. So there's no thorough, there's no resources, there's no funding, there's no dedication to solving these crimes. So killing black people is a crime of virtual impunity. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the rates of murder we see in these low-income black communities today are identical to the rates of murder you saw in frontier towns in the Old West, the same as you see in Arab ghettos in Israel that are totally marginalized and cut off from the government there. And so when you have a community that has no trustworthy relationship with police, you have this fratricidal killing because this is the natural state of man to kill each other. And that it is only if you are recognized as a citizen by the state that you give up your power to kill someone and take retribution yourself. Like if someone wronged me, I would sue them. I would call the police when my apartment got broken into. I called the police that filed a report because I'm a white citizen in America and the police protect and serve me. Therefore, I have surrendered my right to seek any retribution for myself. In the black community, you are not being serviced by the police in the same way. So therefore the culture in that community is, well, we have to solve this ourselves, which in any community, black, white, Arab, Chinese, will then escalate into violence because without government, the natural state of man is to seek retribution and violence to kill each other. So what you have is you have all these conservatives who are saying, what about black on black crime? And then unfortunately, I think the response of the Black Lives Matter at this moment has been to say, well, that's just a distraction. We need to talk about police. You know, stop trying to change the subject. It's the same subject. And this this ghetto side book, which like everyone should read, it changed how I think about the whole thing. Really, wow. I think nails it to the wall. All right. Next up, we got a lot of feedback about Black Lives Matter as it relates to the Bernie Sanders interruption. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike, Lance, and Larry all wrote in with really similar points, but I'm going to read Larry's email. But thank you to Mike and Lance as well. Larry in Washington D.C. says, "I'm a 40 year old white male from Kansas with very strong progressive political ideals." In response to the Black Lives Matter movement, I believe in its message and its goal. However, the issue with Black Lives Matter interrupting Bernie Sanders or any other progressive candidate that will most likely support their mission is that it sends the wrong tone. It frustrates Black Lives Matter supporters, and it also provides the anti-movement with justification to their twisted way they view the world. Quote, see, they can't even get along with the most liberal. By all means, interrupt, but let's interrupt those that have worked hard to keep the unjust conditions thriving that caused the Black Lives Matter movement to begin with. Cruz, Trump, Rubio, these are the fearmongers that intentionally pretend the world is right as rain, find blame on the victims at every opportunity, or are simply too ignorant to see it. Get on that evening news for Fox and Friends to have to address. Not political ammo, because Black Lives Matter chose the nicest guy on the ticket. Thank you for your time, and keep doing what you do. Larry. I know I rolled my eyes with that one, too. Mm-hmm. I hate the way the word tone was used. And it's like it's always, again, how 
you know, movements of color always have to watch themselves and and respond nonviolently, even though they're being pelted. Sometimes even when we're talking about segregation in schools, right, desegregating schools, you know, when you think about MLK's days and you see all that imagery, what do you see? You see black, young black children having to comport themselves like adults. Kids always have to basically, you know, uh, behave like adults. And actually, we always have to, you know, watch the way we dress, watch what we say, watch how we interact with especially white progressives. Um, I think that they handled it the way that they were moved to handle it. And I still think they didn't do the wrong thing. I know you don't mean it this way, Larry, but it just feels a little condescending. I mean, I, I would just say that the smugness of progressive liberals is a problem. If you want to look at where did Eric Garner happen, where did Tamir Rice happen, these are not happening in bastions of con- of conservatism under conservative leadership. These are happening in progressive communities. If you want to find the most segregated communities and schools in the country, they are always in progressive communities. They are in New York City, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, shall I go on and on. So this notion that we should not challenge white progressives on their racial track record because in some abstract way they align with the values of equality when on the ground the inequality under progressive leadership is the highest in the country. I think I think there needs to be some soul searching about why this bothers people so much and why Bernie Sanders, because, you know, 50 years ago he supported the civil rights movement, cannot now be challenged. That, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, I would I mean, I still say what I said last week is it be as rude as you want, but there has to be a strategy and a point and an end game. The end game was to get him to talk and to address and, the issues, he which did. he did. Right? And Hillary did following yes. that. And yes. it should also be clear, like we love and embrace the tactics of the civil rights movement now, 50, 60 years removed. But mm-hmm. uh, progressives were not condoning what King was doing either. They were not right. condoning his direct action back then. So I, I think in the middle of it, there's all always respectability politics and always people saying there's a right way to do it. The right way to do it is to uh, disrupt and that's what they're doing. And you don't disrupt just by disrupting Donald Trump because that's who everyone would be comfortable with them disrupting. And I don't know how that changes anything. You have to change the way progressives are thinking on this to move the dial. And honestly, disrupting Donald Trump just confirms what Donald Trump supporters exactly. want from Donald Trump is that he's the person he's going to shout at you down and tell you how it is and say something negative about blacks and Latinos and everyone's going to cheer him. Um, whereas on the progressive side, at least it provokes a conversation that might go somewhere. No, yes. Actually, sometimes to me, I feel like especially I think white progressives suffer from white fragility more so than any other, oh, other, other community. Absolutely. So I feel like it's like you're like eh, you're like retrieving into your shell imploding when you see people of color acting in a way that doesn't make you comfortable. Right. So, you know, I just feel like, again, like we said last week or was it the week before to coddle or not to coddle? I say not to coddle. Right. I, I say it's a case-by-case basis. Uh, I met one guy in Mississippi, black guy. Uh, he said Mississippi is the favorite place he ever lived because every white person in Mississippi, you know exactly where they were and where they stood and who they were. It's like, okay, I can I can get that. If you're going to be racist at 2 o'clock, I know where not to be at 2 o'clock, <laughs> right? But on the progressive side of the aisle, it's very wishy-washy. It's very, you know, it's, oh, I'm your best friend, but then I'm going to, like, just, I'm going to turn on you at the exact moment you don't expect. Um, it can be more treacherous on that side of the aisle. Whereas when you're with white people in Mississippi, white Republicans in Mississippi, all right, you, you know what the score is. 
you know? But yeah, I think that's that's it. Like, again, just the facts on the ground. Look at New York City. Look at the inequality and the segregation in this city. New York City has the most segregated school system in the whole country. So, you know, there's only so much padding on the back one can do for being a liberal in this city, yet uh, functioning and benefiting from an extremely unequal and very harmful system. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely going to get back to that. Sorry, Larry. Sorry, Mississippi. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sorry for Mississippi. (laughs) All right, moving on from that, Katie in Brooklyn pointed out the interruption actually took place at a Social Security and Medicare celebrating event, not a rally for Bernie Sanders, as you might believe if you were following a lot of the reports about the Black Lives Matter uh, interruption. Scott makes a similar point. He says, first of all, as a white guy, I was pretty disgusted by the vitriol of some of the reactions of white Bernie Sanders supporters, especially the ones claiming not to support Black Lives Matter anymore. Ultimately, Black Lives Matter is a movement that is much more important than the candidacy of any individual, including someone as promising as I think Bernie Sanders is. My main disagreement with the action of the protesters in Seattle was their premise that Social Security and Medicare slash Medicaid are white issues. Black and Latino people are disproportionately more likely to rely on Medicaid for their health insurance, and when we have so many people of color dying of preventable diseases, I don't think we can afford not to have that conversation. A cut to Social Security and Medicare puts Black Lives Matter in danger, albeit in a less direct and visible way than police violence. No argument here. We do need Medicaid. We do need Medicaid. Yeah, no, it's a good comment. Yeah, it's a good comment. Yeah. Next question. All right. Go, Scott. All right. So this first voicemail we got is from Ildi from Toronto. Hi, guys. It's uh, Ildi from Toronto, Canada. About the Uber situation, uh, we have a similar debate going back and forth in Toronto. Um, I mean, I'm a woman of color, but I've never... Uh, had trouble getting a cab and because most of our cab drivers are all uh, people of color and if anything that's been the racial injustice a lot of doctors and lawyers and people who can't get certified in our country when they come from their own countries end up being cab drivers so I'm not sure what the situation is in New York if it's all white folk or uh, who's the one who who are all these people who are denying cab rights to black folk or people of color I am so I guess naive when it comes to this kind of stuff because I'm not sure that's the same reason we're not uh, uh, we're fighting Uber here in Toronto and by we I mean our mayor and, and the city thanks guys and keep up the awesome job so a little international education to be done about problems catching cabs in New York <laughs> is it a New York hear. thing I, I don't is I it mean, an American thing I've never had it so bad as in, as in New yeah, York. Yeah, in New York for me, it's been it's been the worst. I can get a cab in most other cities, huh? Easily, but I mean, I'm yeah. sure it happens. But I think in New York, it is very intense. Well, most of the the yellow cabs that I've taken um, from like in right after nine eleven actually were from people of color that actually were doctors in their countries. Yes. Many of them, more than a handful. Um, that couldn't get certified here or, or that were, you know, were going through an intense amount of um, of uh, racial tension because right. they come from like India, you know, they come from other, they come from all these countries that, you know, a lot of uh, white Americans just feel like, you know, they were the Middle East, therefore they must be terrorists. But back then I remember getting picked up more often. Mm-hmm. And then after it like kind of like quelled, then it went back to where I couldn't get catch a cab on a 
kind of visceral, you know, just somebody who just wants to get from point A to point B. I think Uber has been like the best thing that's happened to the city. Right. I mean, you just, I, I could not tell you how many black men and women, but particularly men I've talked to who are like, Uber just simply saves you this constant indignity or fear of indignity. And I rarely catch cabs now, even though cabs some t- a lot of times are probably cheaper. But like, I don't think people understand how that feels to be standing out there and just watch cabs pass you over and over and pick up people in front of you or turn the light off right in front of you, lock the door, not let you in the cab. Like this happens a lot. And mm. so, yeah, the... Oh, and by the way, she asked... I'm sorry that it's yeah. taking people's jobs. It's not what I want. But what my husband said the other day was, you know, they wouldn't be taking your jobs if you weren't discriminating against so many New Yorkers. That's exactly so, what my husband says. Yes. It's hard to feel yeah. bad in that way. Though I will say West Indian cabbies always stop. Yes. For me. Oh, in Brooklyn. No, even in the city too. Well, we have yeah. uptown. I have a, we have mostly Dominican cabbies. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they stop, sometimes they don't. But... Uh, the lady from Toronto wanted to ask what the racial makeup was of our of our dr- uh, cab drivers. Oh yeah, and I would say it's barely any, any white, white people. Yeah, yeah, any and white if they guys. are, they're usually immigrants too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pol- I've had some Eastern European yeah uh, cab drivers. I don't, I don't. There's not really any cabs, native. So. I think like American-born cab drivers. Period. I don't even run in, in in this city. I don't even run to like Black American cab drivers. Almost all of them are from. Somewhere else, like in DC, a lot of them are Black American, but the only place in DC, I've, I've only had Ethiopian and, and I've West had Ethiopian African and Black American. Really, DC, the yeah. only the only place I've ever had white cab drivers. I, we'll get to this in the <laughs> Katrina segment uh, in the next show. But I went to college in New Orleans mm. and mm. Uh, at Tulane, and Tulane's the fancy uptown uh, private university there. Dropout rate is huge, right? Because you get to New Orleans and you just party and you have a good time, mm. and people just drop out all the time. And the running joke, and it's not even a joke because it happens, is because you go to the French Quarter, you go out, everybody catches a cab. Once every month or two months, your cab driver's like, oh, yeah, I went to Tulane. <laughs> there's, wow. Because there's, there's so, you can, like, if you're a white, do-nothing guy who just wants to hang out, you bartend, you drive a cab, and you just hang out in New Orleans. I don't know how it is now at post-Katrina, but back then, you just drop out of college, drive a cab, and then you could just hang out in New Orleans the rest of your life. But that's the only place I've ever had white cab drivers. Wow. In Portland, go. but... Demographically, that makes sense. Right. <laughs> Next. Hello, I'm Shelley Brisbane from Austin, Texas. I really enjoyed your discussion of Uber, and I think there are a lot of parallels between the experiences of folks of color and people with disabilities where Uber is concerned. Uber has been a great benefit to a lot of blind and visually impaired people and other disabled folks who are able to get around their communities independently, effectively, and affordably. And especially since the apps became accessible to screen readers on people's smartphones, it's been a great service for the blind, particularly, who have become advocates on Uber's behalf in many cases. On the downside, people with disabilities have been turned down for rides frequently. People with guide dogs, people who use wheelchairs, people who have other disabilities are at the whim of individual drivers who might be freaked out by disability, and so they don't get to take the rides that they've contracted for. And there are several lawsuits active in different jurisdictions to address whether Uber is subject to the Americans with Disabilities Act. They say they're not, and the uh, people who are filing suit say that they should be because the ADA requires public accommodation regardless of disability. I'm actually kind of appalled and shocked that Uber does not think. I, I thought it was just a matter of education that maybe drivers don't know they have to, but I am surprised that the company does not think that it has to comply with the ADA. I can't imagine they would win that suit. My father is, a, is an architect who works 
with the government on ADA issues, uh, inspecting houses. And because um, I, I asked them, like, it's been 23 years since uh, the law is passed, and it's obviously cheaper just to build it right in the first place as opposed to get penalized. And, and he's, he's like, why aren't people just complying? Because my dad has plenty of work inspecting developers who don't comply. And he's like, you know, people just play the lottery mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. the chance of not getting investigated. And I don't know as, enough about the Uber thing to say, but they're going to try and get out of the regulation if they can. And that goes back to the sort of the pros and cons of this that we talked about last week. Obviously, as she's saying, for the blind, people of color, it's been a huge boon. But that benefit is very unevenly spread of who gets the benefits and who doesn't. It's the first time I've actually heard that some that that um, people with disabilities were were reaping some of the benefits because I'm always reading tweets or whatever about how they're anti people with disability. They well, I, think it, I think it depends yeah. on the disability. Does it I think, de- depends on the disability. Saying. Yeah. Wow. That's really, I mean, that's really something. I, I think it'll be, ultimately, they're going to want to serve most customers. I think mm-hmm. the, the problem issue is going to be arise is how they're going to treat their drivers. Because mm-hmm. once right. right now they've got this phenomenal growth curve and they're making lots of money, and then it's going to level off as all things do, mm-hmm. but the investors are going to keep saying, well, where's the quarterly profits? Right. And the only right. people you can squeeze are the drivers. Right. right. So. I agree. Mm-hmm. All right. This next one is just kind of a general email. It's from Gareth in Australia. Um, and this may be my favorite wow, thing you guys are that we got. Hi, guys. Uh, I listen to your podcast with great interest as I am a young black man living in Australia and have for many years had the white people around me try to square what they see in front of them, me, <laughs> with what their understanding of black people is based on things they've gleaned from American television, music, etc. However, things have become increasingly frustrating since the recent surge in popular interest surrounding social justice issues, particularly among young people with Internet access. Uh, I gather that the pressure to be appropriately intersectional has driven a lot of white kids around here to check their privilege and start talking about race in similar fashion to their American blogger friends. The problem is, I'm not an American black person, and no offense to those who are, but I find this new hand-wringing attitude very insulting. The point is... Why are these unpleasant American activists allowed to become the global spokespeople for black-skinned people? Am I being traitorous to everyone in the world who shares in blackness? As such, if I say to my white friends that what Black Lives Matter is doing is wrong-headed, do I have some responsibility to show solidarity for American black people? Because somewhere back in history, I too have ancestors that were stolen from Africa to be slaves on a plantation. And does this solidarity entail yelling and screaming about my hurt feelings. Oh, where to start uh, with that? Go ahead. Does that make- some, cause I'm trying to figure I out where to dive in. First. I'm trying to figure because out where I'm to dive in. I'm the condescending white person who's making me feel uncomfortable? <laughs> yes, and hand-wringing and all of that. Um, oh, my God. A white person who just hates you. It's like, all right, well, I understand that, and I can put you over there, and I can, you're, I can understand who you are. But a white person who's just like cloying and condescending and wants to give you this big tongue bath of condescension about how much they love diversity and all that, that can be just as annoying. And, and like it was this great quote I read in some book about it's at the height of the civil rights movement. Some black guy said that like every party I go to, some white liberal wants to corner me and talk about the race thing. When, oh, Jesus, when, that just happened the other day. When I just want to talk about this football. This so always happens. So I just want to talk about the football game. And this guy wants to peg me and talk about the race thing. And, and you know... It's this thing where sometimes I want, yeah, if I were black, I would want to be able to turn off the Black Lives Matter switch and just be Gareth and watch a football game for five minutes and not have my existence politicized 24-7. 
Yes, right? exactly. I can understand that that desire. At the same time, do you have this, you know, dedication to, to solidarity to, to speak up for everyone else? And I guess I would say, like, that the fact that your friends are talking about this is not the fault of black folks who are trying to fight for their lives and for the lives of their, their loved ones. So I think you need to maybe change your, your premise and your thinking on like who should be upset about talk to your friends and tell them you're uncomfortable, but I don't, I don't know why you should disparage the whole movement. And also I don't think black lives matter is trying to speak for all black people everywhere in every circumstance. It's a very American movement and by virtue of it being part of the country that is the only superpower in the world it means it gets of course a lot more prominence in the world um Mm -hmm. but should you have solidarity i I guess you need to figure out where where you stand on issues yourself but I i don't think you should disparage people who are fighting i mean literally their children being killed in the streets in this country um and saying that that's you know inconvenient because your white friends are talking to you about it anyway yeah do what you gotta do gareth you be you. <laughs> Do you, bro. <laughs> but we implore you to start, like, you know, looking in well, and thinking I mean, about where you stand on these issues. You're absolutely right. The, the, the source of the agitation is not the Black Lives Matter movement. It's the white friends. Yeah. So. Um, do we have time for any more? Or? I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up on one one very awkward question for the two of you. <laughs> sure. Um, this no, one is, we are not. This one is from Marcus. No, <laughs> Marcus uh, sent us a rather short email, but I'm just going to get straight to his question after having heard the last episode and sensing a little bit of tension between Raquel and Tanner. He says, I sense there might be some awkward tension between Tanner and Raquel. Is there any truth to that? Or is it just me reading into playful banter? Like the person I love the most in the world is my daughter and my son. I don't agree with everything she does or says. We disagree. My husband, my friends, my closest friends, we spar sometimes, right? In, In the ring, actually, and out of the ring. On issues, and I don't always have to agree with issues. And sometimes human beings at dinner tables sometimes cut each other off. They're excited. I'm not bored by what you say. I'm not bored. You don't bore me. So I'm going to have to jump in sometimes, and you're going to have to jump in and cut me off sometimes. That is human nature. Have you ever had a conversation where you're like, hello? When we first conceived of this show, Raquel, you know, one of her first, you know, ideas and no, or Know, thoughts for it is like I don't want to be NPR. I don't want to be calm and stayed. I want us to like mix it up, and, and I don't want to like yell at each other like cable TV. But like we should have fun, mix it up, and and really go for it. You know, like Star Talk Radio and some of these other shows you really like. And so I would say that of the comments we've got about like sort of the politics of the show itself, I would say half of them are Tanner Colby needs to be quiet. Tanner Colby needs to shut up and listen to Raquel and Bertunde because if a white person cuts off a black person, it is assumed that I'm Bill O'Reilly asserting my white privilege over you. When in fact, you and I just have this conversation and I might get excited and say, hey, I got a point. And then you're like, hold hold on. And that just happens in conversation. But like you said before, when this happened the last time, people project their racial politics onto our discussion. Yeah, and I just I hope that we don't get to a place where we do sound. And there's nothing wrong with NPR. There's nothing wrong with any of these shows. I love them all, but it's just not my style. Right. And I just don't want to be in a room where we're all taking, we're all like bored by each other, or you know, speaking in a way that's very clinical. Because of the issues that we talk about, I know for me, I don't leave them in here. I take them outside with me. I live them. Right. Um, and you know, I'm passionate about them. So I don't want to come off like you know. Sometimes I'm gonna be loud, and sometimes I'm gonna cut you off. But it's because I'm excited. Sometimes I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to remind you to let me finish my thought right and i'm sure it's going to happen again and again and again 
what whatever. Well, and there's, there's a slight condescension to it that well, Raquel can't speak up for herself, so I need to like scold Tanner into. You I've know. gotten a lot of emails about that, about like you know I've noticed that Baratunday and Tanner was cutting her off. Da, 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 da. I don't. I didn't hear that. I don't hear that, and I think we cut each other off. Yeah. But that I mean. But they hear it when I do it. Yeah, because you're an evil white man. Because I'm an evil white man. Yeah. So is that but, a yes or a no? No. Is there a tension? There's, no. no. There's no tension. But it's. Uh, I hate to break the news. We kind of we genuinely okay. We don't agree on a lot of subjects, but we genuinely like each other. Right. I hate to break the news to you guys. And if you if you compared our show to the average cable news shout fest, we're like ninety percent more civil. Yeah. You know. That's what guard. That's what the Guardian said. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's what if the Guardian says it. <laughs> then it must be true. Then it must be true. All right, we are going to wrap up the B-Side this week. Thanks for all your comments and feedback. Send us more. Remember, if you send a voicemail, you're more likely to get it on the air. Um, And we love hearing your thoughts and ideas. Where can they email us and where can they send voice memos to? I should include that, shouldn't I? Maybe. Maybe. Our email is showaboutrace at gmail.com. You can just record a little voice memo on your phone and and send it right to us. Uh, Or email us traditionally if that's what you like to do. Those are the two best ways to get a hold of us. Or we're on Facebook and Twitter at showaboutrace. In a few moments, you'll be hearing our episode number 12 with the fabulous, the fabulously, first of all, I want you guys to know, she has the dopest nails. (laughs) Nicole Hannah-Jones has like the dopest nails of any, next to Jay Smooth, of any guests you've ever had. (laughs) Wow. Those are banging nails. We're going to get into that in the next episode. All right, coming up, Nicole Hannah-Jones nails. We'll see you then.